Michael Scars by Onyx and Elm. Chapter 27 December 25th, 1998 Diary The muggle date, as a concept, is not wholly ridiculous as it turns out. The lines are ridiculous and muggle London is highly overcrowded, but their hot chocolate is good and their toy craftsmanship is... tolerable. No, forget all that. Muggle dates are probably fucking ridiculous all the way around. But muggle dates with Granger are... Fuck, well, brace yourselves, things are about to get very fucking ugly for me. Draco. January 3rd, 1999. She's left every letter unopened, save a very brief scribbled missive from Ginny which read, I'll be there soon, don't panic. It was dated from Christmas, but hadn't arrived until the next day, along with most of the others. Inclusion in the envelope was the clipping from the Daily Prophet, which Hermione had ended up tucking away in her nightstand. But she'd been very careful not to look at the senders on the other letters, had seen one written in Ron's furious scrawl and stopped checking after that. There was likely one from Harry, maybe more than one, definitely several from Parvati, Romilda, Eloise, maybe even Neville if she had to guess. Likely not Luna, she tended not to pry. She winced at the thought of one from Molly Weasley, but she had to accept that it was probably somewhere in the pile too. Thankfully, not many students had stayed at Hogwarts over the holidays, and hardly any from their year. What immediate attention she and Draco did get from the article came mostly from the ogling first years, isn't it romantic, and the occasional haughty disapproval from some fourth and fifth years who knew more about their history. Draco, though, she'd been very apprehensive about his reaction, didn't know what to expect, and he'd stared at her with that alarmed expression for a concerning amount of seconds had her doubting and second-guessing the way he always does. Now, though, he's got his head in her lap as she reads Merida Swagop, so she figures she must have done something right. They're in the divination classroom again. It's become their regular haunt, and as she reads, he casts lazy variations of charm spells above their heads, yawning. Over the past several days, no longer hindered by the need to sneak around, they've discovered how much they enjoy one another's silent company. No need to talk, no need to entertain each other, just mutual, undemanding silence. She doesn't usually break it, hates to, but today she feels she must. What time does the train get in? Draco's paper dragons hesitate in mid-air and start to fly counterclockwise. Noon, he says, examining his wand. But you already knew that. Can you blame me for being nervous? She glances down at him over the edge of the book. He doesn't look at her. No, but I don't particularly want to talk about it. Shouldn't we have... I don't know, a plan or something? Now he does glance up, and it's with an expression that she's becoming increasingly familiar with. A look that seems to say, Really, Granger? Without saying anything at all. What? She snaps the book shut. It's not a terrible idea. People don't usually have to rehearse conversations with their friends, he drawls. Oh, please. As if you didn't rehearse what you wanted to say to not. He flattens his lips and shakes his head innocently at her, pompously. No. No, actually, you'll find that I went into that one completely green. No script. She huffs at him. You're telling me that not sudden tolerance of the two of us is the work of your exceptionally skilled improv? He flashes those sharp teeth she never expected to know so well. I'm that good. The large sundial clock on the wall chimes once with a certain finality, 
She tenses up and Draco shifts uncomfortably in her lap. He sighs and lets his paper dragons fall away to ash. A moment later, he's sitting up, turning to face her. You did the hard part, he says. In fact, you overdid the hard part. He gets to his feet and holds out his hands. This is just the encore. Hermione tucks the book beneath her arm, grumbling unintelligibly under her breath as she lets him heave her off the floor. I don't believe for one second that you aren't as nervous as I am. Together they vanish the evidence of their presence in the classroom. And I hate your metaphors. They don't hold hands. Both of them seem to subconsciously agree that that would be too jarring. No, they don't even touch. Instead, she sits at the corner of the Gryffindor table's bench, facing the doorway to the Great Hall, back straight, jackknifed. Her hands are folded, twisted in her lap. Draco sort of looms behind her, sitting on the table itself, elbows on his knees, that bored mask on his face. From an outsider's perspective, it might look like the sort of awkward posing of a portrait. But there is no conceivable way to act natural right now, and as students start to mill into the hall with their trunks, back from holiday and altogether more spiritual and energetic, she starts to wonder whether she made a terrible, terrible decision. She tosses another glance over her shoulder at Draco, watches him jut his lip out and blow a stray strand of hair out of his face over and over again. No, she looks back to the entry row, a little emboldened. No, not a terrible decision. Just possibly terrible execution. Because Harry, Ron and Ginny round the corner, and it is absurdly easy to tell they were just talking about her. The way Harry trails off and mutters nonsense. The way Ron stiffens. The look Ginny shoots the two of them. Hermione tries to pretend she doesn't notice, instead leaning back on the oldest and worst defence mechanism that she's acting like nothing's amiss. She smiles broadly and gets to her feet, pulling Ginny into her arms. Ginny hugs her back, all wool and mittens. Hesitantly, nervously, but at least she does. Hi, hi, was your Christmas? Hermione rushes out, eyes flitting to Ron and Harry so quickly they're nothing but a blur before shifting back to Ginny, where it's safer. Ginny says something about monogrammed cardigans and backyard quidditch, but she's looking distractedly over Hermione's shoulder, at Draco. He hasn't moved from the table, watching them, expression guarded, emotionless. Hermione glances back at him too, unsure how to proceed. Her pulse throbs in her ears. Draco quirks a brow at her, just barely. So she turns back, closes her fists at her sides to hide their tremors, and bows to fate. So, I... I'm sure you've all seen the prophet. Ron drops his trunk, lets it thud on the ground, loudly, echoing through the hall, making them jump. Yeah, he says roughly, pushing through Harry and Ginny's hands to stand in front of her. We've seen the prophet. Owls stop delivering over the holidays. She feels sweat start to build on her clenched fingers. I wanted to speak to you in person. Well, here we are, Ron snaps, splaying his arms out wide. Go on. Ron? Ginny tries, but he waves her off, stepping sideways and in front of her, as if he consciously knows he's cutting her off in one-line support. I can't torture you when you're being unreasonable like this. Hermione says cautiously, voice low. She isn't surprised. 
In fact, he's been less aggressive than she expected. If she can talk to him down, maybe she can... Ron crowds her suddenly, steps into her space, blasting fuming breaths against her face and lording his height over her. Unreasonable, he hisses. I want you to consider for one second, waking up on Christmas morning to find out your best friend chose to stay behind for the holidays to shag the person you hate most. And he's got his finger in her face. You. You're a traitor. That's what you are. Ron! It's both Harry and Ginny this time, but they don't move to stop him. No, instead Hermione sees the shadow cross over her, feels his presence from behind, and suddenly she's trapped between two tall bodies. Draco, taller and leaner, Ron, broader and stockier. The fury in Ron's eyes inflames at the sight of him, his chest rising and falling like a bull panting for breath. Step back, right now says Draco, voice vibrating against her back. Oh, don't you fucking... Ron steps in closer, pushing against Hermione, and an instant later she watches Draco's pale arms shove Ron back several feet, just slam into the centre of his chest, until he almost drop-trips over his own trunk. Draco steps smoothly in front of her, obscuring her view, but not enough for her to miss Ron ripping out his wand as he writes himself. Let go, Weaselby. See how you do against me when I'm conscious, yeah? I swear to Merlin I'm going to... Stop right now! It's Harry. Of course it is. He has his wand out too, and he's stepped between them, alternating who he points it at. Stop. We're not doing this. Stop. She doesn't think she's ever seen Ron this furious. He's practically foaming at the mouth, hunched over like he could lunge at them any minute. She steps out from behind Draco to get a better look, almost dazed by the whole scenario. And Ginny seems to take her cue, grabs Ron by the collar of his sweater and the prowess only a sister can have, starting to tow him backwards out of the hall. You! Ron spits, even as he stumbles over his feet. His eyes are locked on Hermione, venomous. You're nothing! You're nothing! And he's gone. Then it's just Harry, staring at the two of them. His hand flexes around his wand and he drops it to his side, walks over to his trunk, to the one Ron's abandoned, glances back once to say, I don't understand, and his expression is flat, empty. Then he's gone too, lugging both trunks behind him. She doesn't cry, she turns off that reaction mechanically, like a switch, even as she feels somewhere deeply that she's just lost a lot of things all at once. She's glad Draco doesn't try to comfort her, expects she'd shrink away if he did, flinch. But she watches the tension in his body loosen beside her, and ever so slowly she reaches her own, releasing her clasp on her sweating, bloodied hands. It could have been worse, he says quietly. She bites down on her tongue until she tastes blood. Could it have? Walking into the Gryffindor common room that night reminds her of fifth year, when Harry was facing all that backlash for speaking out against Voldemort. Only this time, it's her they're all staring at. She knows instantly she's unwelcome. It's in the air. Their stabbing gazes follow her with every step she takes, and she can't find Jenny. Can't even find Harry or Ron, though they'd be little comfort. "'Is this like a research project, Granger?' asked Cormac from the corner. She notices his face hasn't completely healed, 
shag the Death Eater and then write an essay about it. What are you playing at? Seamus cuts him off, and for one painful moment she thinks he's defending her. But he's not. He's adding on. Whose side are you on, Hermione? She feels like she's been cornered, like every direction holds another face she doesn't want to see. The war is over, she says quietly. There are no sides. And it's as though she's combined fiend fire with the draught of living death. An explosion. From all sides, people shout, That's rubbish! Have you gone mad? Bloody hell, Hermione! Who are you? Can you even hear yourself? And she loses all of her courage in that moment, stumbling backwards and staring down at her escaping feet as she runs away like a coward, chased from her own house like a pariah. She'd known this was a possibility. A probability. McGonagall had warned her about it. But she'd been consumed by hope, Hope that there was more to all of them than petty prejudice and bad blood. Hope that more of them could see past it like Ginny. Hope that maybe Harry, at least. She can hardly see through her tears. Only knows when she arrives that she stumbled her way to the dungeons, the last place her past self would have sought out for comfort and safety, and the only place she now has. Chapter 28 January 3rd, 1999 Diary. Well, it would appear the Golden Trio is not all it's chalked up to be. A fool's gold, if you ask me, considering how quickly two-thirds of it was ready to drop the last third on her arse. I don't feel guilty, though. And a good portion of it is entirely Granger's fault. She's indecisive and impulsive. Things would have gone over much more smoothly, I'd warrant, had she told the lot of them ages ago. I'm under no impression that they wouldn't have tried to hex me at every given opportunity but they wouldn't have been able to play the betrayal card so easy. And then, of course, when she did finally make up her fucking mind, she decided her best option was Rita fucking Skeeter. Don't get me wrong, I'm all for shock value, and I'd be lying if I said I didn't enjoy it immensely. But it was stupid and impulsive, like Granger is. No, she's not stupid. She's a lot of things, but she's not stupid. Mother hasn't written, which I find odd. But then again, maybe they've taken away her access to the Prophet. No, all I got was an owl from my solicitor, informing me that this was possibly very good for my image. Ha, <laughs> good one, Attlebrush. If only you could see the way the Gryffindors are looking at me now. Draco. January 3rd, 1999. She isn't prepared the second time she knocks on Slytherin House. Isn't thinking, not about anything but Ron's last words. You're nothing. And so it's really no one's fault but hers when Pansy Parkinson appears through the wall, because anyone in a rational state of mind would have seen this as a possibility. She's dressed in an elaborate black negligee and an unexpected pair of fluffy green slippers. Her raven hair is drawn up into a bun, and she has some sort of sheen on her face, likely an anti-aging potion. Hermione is subconsciously thinking how pretty she really is, until her face scrunches up at the sight of her. What do you want? she hisses. How can she answer that? She doesn't know herself, doesn't know anything any more. So she just stands there like a fool, tear-stained and dishevelled, staring at this girl. This girl who couldn't be any more different than her, any more her opposite, staring at her and gasping through a sudden attack of racking sobs. She hasn't felt this pathetic in a long time, perhaps ever. But it's all coming to a head, 
all of those dirty looks coupled with the look in Draco's eyes. Harry's silence, Ginny's absence, the cold, clinical smell of Malfoy Manor, the itch of her scar. She feels like a cauldron, left sitting on a flame, abandoned for far too long, and the pewter is finally melting, and she's finally boiling over. Here, in front of Pansy Parkinson in her nightgown. If that isn't bad enough, a moment later she's sobbing in front of Theodore Knott, too. He appears at Pansy's side, smelling faintly of fire whiskey, and eyeing her passively. Told you it'd be Granger, he says. She's the only one who knocks. She feels like she might be sick. Feels like the epicentre of a ridicule. Is she having a seizure? asks Pansy. Her knees buckle. It all keeps getting worse. Can't possibly keep getting worse. So much worse. She sinks herself on the flagstone. Shins hitting hard. But the sting is nothing compared to the throb in her chest. Knott's voice is muffled by the roar of blood in her ears. Possibly, he says, and then suddenly she feels hands looping under her shoulders. Right, Granger, up we go, Knott grunts, heaving her back onto her feet. Theo, no! Pansy snaps. You know we'll get blamed if they find her convulsing in our corridor. Hermione sags against him, can't think, can't see through her tears, can't breathe. We've never let a Gryffindor in, Pansy argues. And she's a mudblood. That's a terrible place to start. Not isn't listening to her. That becomes clear when Hermione feels herself being led through the nebulous, filmy sensation that is the false wall. She's going to bleed all over our carpet, is Pansy's last feasible protest. Vague hues pass before her watery eyes, deep emeralds and bracts, the orange glow of a fireplace, and even in her shaking, incoherent state, she's furious with herself for not being able to see better. She's wanted to see this for ages. Right, here we go. Yes, let's go, Granger. Let go. Down. I'm sitting you down. Not struggles to drop her into the soft depths of a black leather sofa, and with her muscles feeling like gelatin, it seems to consume her, swallow her up. What the hell's the matter with her? Pansy shifts across her eyeline, just a glimpse of black lace. Panic attack, I'm guessing, says not. Hermione forces herself to focus intently on the tremble in her fingers, uses the focus to stop them, to make them still, and slowly, though it feels like mounting an impossibly steeping hill, she begins to come to her senses. Just enough to ask, Where's Draco? in a barely audible rasp. Pansy snorts from somewhere off to the left, and Hermione turns to her, watches her slowly come into her focus as the tears stop flowing. She's draped herself across the deep green tuft velvet chelange. Looks almost like a painting. Went for a swim, answers Not from behind her. He comes walking around the edge of the sofa a moment later and hands her a black crystal goblet. <laughs> Idiot she thinks to herself. Why hadn't she gone to the lake? Why hadn't she put an actual thought into Draco's usual habits and considered where he was most likely to be? Why had she thrown herself into this situation for no reason? She glances down into the goblet, a mess of emotions, dazed and angry all at once. A fire whiskey stares back up at her, 
and for the first time in her life it's impossibly appealing. She takes a generous sip and grimaces at the burn of the spice. Yeah, that'll put you right. Not collapses down into the adjacent sofa, the three of them arranged like the points of a triangle. He's been very... amicable. Has been for a few weeks now. She doesn't know why. Doesn't question it in this moment. Thank you, she mumbles, goblet already at her lips for a second sip. You can't stay. Panzi's words slice through the air. I hope you know that. Hermione glances over at her again, cheeks red, mortified by every second of the past fifteen minutes. I know, she says. Slowly, her heart rate falls to a normal level. Her tears dry stickily against her face, making the skin feel tight, swollen. The goblet still shakes a little in her hand, but a third sip emboldens her enough to sit up a little straighter so she can look around. Harry and Ron had said the Slytherin common room was dark and creepy. Had said it was cold and smelled damp. No light, no warmth, no comfort. But now she thinks they only saw what they wanted to see, what they expected to see, and she pushes them from her mind, the thought of them too painful. She takes in every inch. Large, diamond-paned windows line the stone walls, lit with the serene blue-green glow of the black lake. Dark shapes float past every now and then. A fish, glimpses of mer-creatures. Beside the windows, sconces hold gently flaming torches, each illuminating a different portrait. Merlin, in his regal robes, hangs above the fireplace. His painting so large it's almost a shrine. Her eyes sweep low. Take in the black marble sturdy tables, the suits of armour. None of the furniture matches. No two pieces are alike. Velvet, leather, suede, marble, wood, granite, and yet it all goes together somehow. The flagstone walls arch up, carved like a th cathedral, columns and all. It is more warm and comforting than she should have ever imagined. Regardless of all the decor, she is certain comes from Borgen and Burke's. Not is watching her when she finally looks her fill. Too gothic for your Gryffindor sensibilities, he quirks her brow. She sniffs, wipes her nose with her sleeve and takes another sip, enjoying the slow burn in her stomach. It's nice, is all she can think to say. Pansy scoffs again and rolls her eyes dramatically. She yanks a bottle of fire whiskey off a table behind her chaise. There seem to be bottles sitting around everywhere. An endless supply. So what's gone hopelessly wrong for you now, Granger? She yanks the cork free and knocks it back with prowess. Get calls named by a Hufflecuff. Hermione shifts where she sits, uncomfortable. Her skinned knees sting, a bloody patch on her jeans. She doesn't want to play Pansy's game. Not right now doesn't care about arguing or witty comebacks, just diverts her stare to Merlin's proud, aged face and says, I'm my best friend, actually. She goes to take another sip, but finds the goblet empty. Not juts his chin in the direction of the nearest bottle, on an end table to her right, and she's enormously grateful to have something to occupy her hands, to have more alcohol to numb her senses. I'm not exactly welcome in Gryffindor as of now. She adds blandly as she falls to the brim. What makes you think you're welcome here? 
Snipes pansy. Not size. Pans. But Hermione just shakes her head. I don't think I'm welcome anywhere. And it's the cold hard truth, sinking into her guts like a bowling ball. Well, this can't be good, says a new voice suddenly, and Hermione jerks, sloshing fire whiskey into her lap. It had been just the three of them until now, but Blazer Beanie is strutting over from a curling seat of the stairs he guesses leads to the dormitories. He's barefoot, yawning his way over in an expensive-looking black velvet bathrobe. Wait, wait, not says, stretching both his arms out behind him in a vague direction of Zabini. Don't sit down. He waves his hand as Zabini reaches the arm of the couch. Grab me the box of tarts from the table, yeah? Zabini wipes an aggravated hand down his face and backtracks, lobs the box none too gently at Knot's chest a moment later before stretching out languidly beside him, tosses his feet into Knot's lap. The entire situation is absolutely surreal. So, Granger's in the dungeons, he says, folding his arms behind his head and flashing gleamingly white teeth, a stark contrast to his smooth, dark skin. First Gryffindor ever. What a treat. Though he says it rather viciously, like she's trapped prey. No, no, not says casually, eating a tart. Romilda Vane in third year, though I doubt she remembers. He and Sabini exchange lascivious grins as Hermione finds it hard to surprise. Pansy is, is plain as day, though, and she goes dark shade of vivid purple and glares at Knot. What brings you to the dark side? asks Sabini. Kicked out of Gryffindor, says Knot around another tart. Oh, well done indeed. Very impressive. It's impossible to tell whether he's being sarcastic. She's hardly ever spoken to Sabini. Possibly never. She has no notion of his personality. Only knows he was once very firm in his belief about blood purity, and was only days away from being marked before the war according to his criminal trial. She's not staying, Pansy stresses, crossing her arms over her chest. Why not? Sabini sends another dark smile Hermione's way. She kept Malfoy from losing an arm. Save this one's ass from fucking expulsion, I'll bet. He kicks a tart out of Knot's hand. Seems pretty handy to have around. What if I accidentally trip another first year? The tension is mind-numbingly dull. She's not staying! Pansy practically shrieks. And perhaps it's all the fire whiskey. But Hermione hears herself ask, Why do you hate me so much? In a quiet voice. Pansy goes still. Everyone does. The silver clock on the mantel ticks loudly in the fresh silence. Hermione continues, deciding its most definitely liquid courage guiding her words. I know I'm a mudblood and a member of the Order. I know you despise my cause, but me, specifically me, why do you hate me? Not once have you and I ever had an altercation. Pansy's expression twitches. A stony, pursed look of wavering fury and uncertainty. It's like you said, she answers last at Primly. You're a mudblood. What more do I need? Somehow I don't believe you. Pansy's lip curls up. Does it look like I give a shit what you believe? And with that, she swings her legs over the side of the chaise, sweeps the bottom of her lace dressing gown and stalks off towards the stairs, tossing, 
and she can't stay over her shoulder. Hermione sinks a little deeper into the sofa when she's gone. Doesn't know why. She's just sour you managed to get Malfoy to come back for seconds, says the beanie. The crassness of it makes her nose wrinkle up. Makes her almost, almost feel for Pansy. She finishes her second goblet. I'm rather surprised, though, actually, Zabili continues. They really turned their backs on you. She feels fresh tears prick at her eyes, forces them to evaporate by digging her fingernails into the heel of her hand. I thought Gryffindors were the high and mighty sort. Forgiveness and honour and all that bollocks. <laughs> so did I says Hermione, staring straight ahead at the far wall. Zabini leans back on the armrest, closes his eyes and smiles contentedly. Don't we all love hypocrisy? And it just sums up everything perfectly, flawlessly. Not sighs. Eat a tart, Granger. You look like you're going to cry again. She only just manages to catch it before it hits her in the face, and gives him a tucked lip non-smile but doesn't eat. She doesn't think she can stomach anything right now, and doesn't want to compromise the strength of the whiskey burning in her gut. She just turns it over in her hands. It's half past one in the morning when Draco finally returns. She's been drinking herself into a stupor with Zabini and Knot for over an hour, in relative agreed-upon silence. Draco strides in, soaking wet and faintly blue with the beginning stages of hypothermia. He's making his way purposely towards the dormitory stairs, tossing a nod of acknowledgement to the three of them before doing a double take. One of these things is not like the others. The fuck? he says flatly, all of the shock manifesting itself in his eyes. He hesitates where he stands, half turns towards the stairs. Hermione manages only a pathetic little wave with her goblet, spilling more whiskey. Good timing, mate. I think one more and she'd be sick says not, lurching to his feet. Zabini yawns and follows suit, and Hermione drunkenly realises they've been keeping her company. Can't really fathom it, though it seems to be the only explanation. What is this? Draco makes his way over to them, brandishing a hand, incredulous. He sends droplets of water flying in every direction. Didn't they teach us drying spells in first year? asks Zabini around another yawn, apparently too bored to stick around for whatever comes next. He disappears up the dormitory stairs. Not what the fuck, Draco says again, voice tight and low. He's sort of fuzzy to her eyes from where she's slumped on the sofa. She squints up at him, trying to form a proper outline. It feels like the adults are talking. The house turned her away, says Not. Found her a sobbing mess just outside. He gave me lots of whiskey. He was very nice, Hermione hears herself announce. She spills some of the whiskey down Draco's already soaked trouser leg and hiccups an apology. Bloody hell, he murmurs. Next, she knows, Draco's hooked an arm around her back, pulling her from the couch by her underarms. You're wet, she informs him as he leans her weight against his side. She'll be fine, Not says, running a sleepy hand through his chestnut brown hair. Hermione just barely catches the interaction between the two of them. The way Draco taps the back of his hand against Not's shoulder, almost in thanks, before he too disappears at the stairs. Draco looks at the same stairs doubtfully for a moment, adjusting Hermione against each time she teeters. Then he sighs and seems to decide to put her back, this time on the larger chaise lounge. 
Oh no, careful. Hermione slurs as he lays her out on it, hands strong. She likes his strong hands. This is Pansy's couch. Every couch is Pansy's couch. Draco's voice is stern, like a parent dealing with a naughty child. It makes her frown. She reaches up desperately as he pulls away, taking hold of both his forearms after missing several times, yanking him in close so he comes into focus. Water drips from his wet hair onto her face. Do you hate me now too? she asks, finds it to be a perfectly logical question. Draco hops at her, expression difficult to read in her state, although perhaps any other time it might be obvious. He pulls out of her grip easily and taps his fingers against her lips. A very gentle shut up. He conjures a blanket, throwing it over her. Conjures a waste bin on the floor by her head as well, an afterthought. Then he makes his way to the couch Zabini and Not had occupied, stretching out on it. She thinks she tries to reach out for him one more time before the exhaustion floods through her like anaesthetic, before her consciousness collapses into dark. She startles awake to methodic ticking and pitch black, forgets where she is. Her head throbs like never before, has her grasping desperately for the wand in her pocket. She casts a charm to dull the pain, sitting up as her eyes adjust to the dark. The faint glow of dying embers in the fireplace starts to illuminate her surroundings, and her heart feels like lead. It wasn't just a vivid nightmare. She's really here, in the Slytherin common room, with nowhere else to go. The clock on the mantel is the only sound. Ticks endlessly. She twists and squints up in the dark, four in the morning. She lets out a shaky breath. Propped up on her elbows, she can see the vague outline of Draco on the adjacent sofa. His chest rises and falls with sleep, but not slowly, and not evenly. With each inhale, it seems to hitch in his throat. Trapped. The arm he has thrown over his head twitches, hand flexing. Into a fist, out of a fist, into a fist, out. She guesses he sleeps just as restlessly as she does. Swallowing to moisten her dry mouth, Hermione sweeps her curls from her face and struggles to her feet, swaying a little with the remnants of the fire whiskey. At this time in the morning, no one would be awake in Gryffindor, no one waiting to ridicule her, as she can sneak into bed, likely without issue. And then she'll sleep for a day, sleep through classes, sleep until it all goes away, forever if she must. Vanishing the blanket she vaguely remembers in Conjuring, she tries to step carefully past the table between the couches, overestimates her balance and the steadiness of her knees. She trips dizzily, legs wobbling, and she knocks against the edge of the table, toppling a goblet. Pollocks, she whispers, but Draco's already shot up off his back. What in? Shh! She waves him silent through the dark. It's just me! Draco sits panting for several extended seconds before flopping back down onto his back. Merlin Granger, you're taking years off my life. He wipes a hand down his face. I'm sorry. I'm leaving. I'm sorry, she whispers, feeling foolish. She tries to skirt around his couch towards the exit, still struggling with her balance. But she only makes it to the armrest before his hand shoots out and grasps her by the thigh. She jerks trips again and this time is yanked sideways by his hand and landing on top of him, knocking the breath out of him with a muffled oof. I'm sorry, she whispers shouts again, struggling to get off and find her footing, but he just coughs and belts her down, 
pulling her over him so that knees are no longer on stomachs and elbows are no longer jabbing into shoulders. Sometimes I swear you're not worth the trouble, he mumbles into her neck, tipping them sideways so she's squeezed between him and the back of the couch. What are you doing? She continues to struggle, even as her body folds comfortably against the familiar planes of his. I shouldn't stay here. No one gives a damn, Granger. Least of all here. Everyone already knows. She thinks it's sleep-talking. It's fairly certain he'd feel differently in the day of light, with a bunch of angry Slytherins staring down at them. But the way his breath whispers across the sensitive skin at the crease of her neck makes it hard to argue. Hard to resist. The couch is still slightly damp, and so is he. She shivers as a residual coal leaches into her and slowly lets her muscles go slack. Gives up. Draco sighs sleepily when he notices. He sinks down deeper into the leather cushions and drives his knee between hers, sliding it up to rest against her inner thighs. Too close. Much too close. Not here, she breathes, suddenly tense again, trembling but not with cold. Not doing anything, he says against her throat. Clearly doesn't realise that, no matter how still he is, she'll never be able to relax in this position. She lays there, breathing shallow, listening to the clock tick for a good five minutes or so. Isn't sure if he's fallen back asleep or not. Will in no way be able to herself. She's wide awake now, and she's thinking. Thinking about his knee, just inches from where it shouldn't be. Thinking about this room, so unfamiliar. Thinking about Knott and Zabini and Parkinson, and then about Ron and Harry and Ginny. Thinking and overthinking, as always. I smell smoke, Draco grumbles suddenly, surprising her, and he reaches up a lazy arm to tap his finger against her temple. Sod off, she hisses, glancing sideways at him. His eyes are still closed. Does anyone worry as much as you do? Do they offer positions in worrying? His words are slow and careless, possibly still half asleep. You should look into that. But his finger stops tapping and starts drawing little circles and swirls on her cheek. Definitely half asleep. I have things to worry about, she whispers, ignoring the pleasant tingles his touch is sending to her brain. I'm losing friends left and right. Now he does open his eyes, blinks slowly at her gaze, tracing over her face. He drops his arm and wedges the other beneath his head to prop it up a bit. I'll be honest, though you won't like it, but part of me gets off on seeing you like this. Her brow furrows. He elaborates. Seeing you lose things, struggle, suffer. It's immensely satisfying after watching you and the Wonder Twins triumph for so many years. I'm sure it is, she says after a long silence feeling an ache blossom beneath her collarbone. She tries to assess why he isn't furious at his words, why they don't set off alarm bells in her head. And yet all she can say is, The Wonder Twins, another muggle reference you should know nothing about. Draco's eyes flick between each of hers. He bobs his free shoulder in a shrug, full of surprises. She manages an unhappy smile. However... He adds after a moment, adjusting his knee between her legs. Her breath hitches. I will say that Weaselby is going to have a very rough term. She squints at him. Is so distracted by his words that she doesn't really register his hand as it glides its way down over her hip. Only notices when he starts unbuttoning her jeans. 
She tries to stop him, pulse jump-starting, but he pushes her hand away and slides down the zip, leaning in to brush his lips over her throat. I don't like what he said. Her words come out broken, disjointed by the way his hand dips beneath the plain white edge of her knickers. But, uh, so I'm a traitor. Draco shakes his head, nose brushing against her robe. Mmm. Her voice wavers. But I'm nothing. He bites her neck suddenly. So hard she jolts, the pain unexpected. Yeah, he says against her skin, then laves his tongue over the abused flesh like an apology. That. A shaking exile is her only response. Draco draws a slow finger up and down against her, making lazy circles and sending shockwaves through her nerve endings. What's worse is you almost seem to fucking believe it. Then he pulls his hand away abruptly, the sudden loss of sensation, a pain all its own, only to make her watch him slip that same finger into his mouth. Suck on it. A strangled noise fights its way out of her throat. She flushes bright pink. Which is fucking absurd, he continues, sliding the wet digit free of his lips and guiding it smoothly back between her legs. She gasps, her hand spined his shoulder, fisting in the damp fabric of his shirt. Pisses me off, he says, fingers finding a comfortable rhythm, gliding against her and making her hips jerk up to meet them. But not as much as he does. She buries her face in his chest. Can't bear to have him watch her while he does this to her. I want to hurt him, he purrs, words not matching his tone, not matching anything as he teases her entrance, swirling his callous fingers around it. Fuck, I so badly want to hurt him. And then he slides two fingers inside. She muffles her cry against him, fingernails digging into his shoulders. Will you let me hurt him? He murmurs in her ear, even as he pumps his fingers in and out, each time finding that odd, perfect spot she can't describe, the one that makes her toes curl and her legs squirm. Don't, she squeaks, weakly, barely. Please, please, I want to hurt him. His voice is rough. He increases the rhythm of his hand to match. Let me hurt him. This is wrong. She knows this is wrong. But knowing that doesn't nothing to stop the oozing, aching pleasure from building up between her hips. No, she whimpers, and he thrusts in a third finger in response, twisting so he's almost laying on top of her, leaning over her, driving into her. She can't hide from him this way, and his lips capture hers with a bruising pleasure. Bite. Suck. Hard. I want to make him bleed. I want to cut him open with a muggle knife. She rides against him, both in protest and in earnest, craving, needing, terrified. Say I can. Say you'll let me. She can only shake her head, eyes squeezed shut, biting down on her tongue. She's so close. Too close. Even if you don't, I think I'll do it anyway. And with that, he's done talking. He hitches her up, with, by her waist with his free arm, belting his under her to bring her closer. Tilt her so the angle of his fingers is unbearable. And they drive in and out, in and out, so consistently, 
so mercilessly until she's bawling his shirt into fists and convulsing against him. Crying out against the skin of his throat and the orgasm explodes through her almost angrily, vengefully. Her hands are shaking when she finally manages to let him go. His shirt is wrinkled and creased, his lips are swollen, and his gaze is savage, delighted, wickedly delighted that he managed to do this to her. She trembles, breathing out loudly in sudden silence. Her shaking fingers find the smooth planes of his cheeks. Don't, don't hurt him. You don't have to hurt him. He dips down, kisses her too sweetly for what he says. I won't make you any promises. Mm -hmm.